Welcome to the Sunday Long Read Podcast. My name is Don Van Natta, and my guest today is Sally Jenkins. She is a sports columnist for the Washington Post, and in my opinion, Sally is the best sports columnist in America. And by the way, I am far from being alone in that assessment. The Associated Press sports editor selected Sally as the nation's top sports columnist four times. And in 2013, she won a first place award from the AP for an investigative series that she co-authored on medical care in the NFL entitled Do No Harm. Sally is the author of 12 books. Four of those were New York Times bestsellers. Most recently, Sally wrote the number one Sum It Up with legendary basketball coach Pat Summit. Her work has appeared in Smithsonian, GQ, and of course, Sports Illustrated, where Sally worked during the 1990s. Sally is a graduate of the Pence School and Stanford and lives in Sag Harbor, New York. Sally, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for agreeing to do it. Now, in the writing room of the FX hit show Justified, the writers often ask themselves this question, what would Elmore Leonard write? And on any and on any subject in sports, I often ask myself, what would Sally Jenkins write? Or what would Sally Jenkins think about this? Or what has Sally Jenkins written about this subject? Let me go find out. Your opinion carries a ton of weight. And I think the reason that it does is your columns are not just hot takes. You are a rigorous reporter, and it shines through in just about every column you do. So my first question is, how important is the reporting that you do to your column writing? Well, first of all, thank you for the, the flattery. That, that's, uh, very, <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> it's very high praise. Uh, you know, El- Elmore Leonard probably had the best piece of advice about writing uh, ever. He said, someone said, you know, what's your secret to good writing? And he said, when it, when it reads too much like writing, I take something out. So he's- I know, I love that. <laughs> yeah, his rules for writing are fantastic, aren't they? They, they really are, they yeah. really are. Uh, you know, for me, the reporting is essential because, you know, and, and maybe it's because I'm a woman in this profession, but I don't have the strong opinions sometimes that my male colleagues do. Um, and I don't know if that's a gender difference or, uh, or what, but I, I just feel like I have to fill in with reporting what I lack in, in strong feeling sometime. Um, you know, that's how it started. And then I, I realized it was actually easier to write a column that way. If, if you can load it up with, with other people's takes on things and, and try to sort through, uh, the varying opinions, sometimes it can be a pretty pretty strong column. So you rely on the reporting because you don't reflexively have an instant opinion. As soon as you hear something like a lot of the hot take specialists of today, like Stephen A. Smith, you don't have an instant reaction to something that you want to blare from the rooftops. You, you feel like you've got to go dig into the subject and really learn about it before you form an opinion. That's exactly right. And I, part of it's my father's influence. You know, Dan Jenkins is Yes. As good as a sports writer as has ever lived, and For I, sure. I can remember my father saying to me years ago, he, he he would say, you know, look at the opposite viewpoint and ask yourself if there isn't something smarter. Um, so, you know, I think I was just trained by him as a writer 
to kind of walk around and, and look at some different angles and, you know, try to go where other people aren't was another big lesson that I took from him. Uh, you know, my, you know, my father wasn't a big one for asking questions in press conferences. He'd say, that's a waste. Why do you want to give your best material to every reporter in the room? <laughs> you know, your, your, your insight or your question. So, uh, so I, you know, I think a lot of it is my father's influence and, and also really probably, as I say, it, it stemmed from a lack of confidence in some ways. Uh, you know, Mike Wilbon has an immediate, he's so well-versed, He's he knows so many people in the business. Uh, you know, he can have a firsthand conversation with a Michael Jordan or a Charles Barkley or a Greg Popovich. Um, you know, and I, I, to a certain extent, don't sort of have that, those relationships, uh, for better or worse. I have some, um, but... I, you know, I, I, I don't have Stephen A. Smith's acquaintance, I guess, with, with a lot of people in the sports business. And so I, I have to call up people and ask them questions and try to sort it out for myself. Well, when you wrote last fall about the NFL, and, and I, was, I was writing investigative pieces with Seth Wickersham about the Roger Goodell's contract extension and Jerry Jones throwing his body in front of it and and all of the issues surrounding you know the controversy with the national anthem and players who were who were kneeling during the playing of the anthem in protest um, for racial issues and for many other issues I was struck by your column Sally because they were um, they were not only smart but they really felt insider um, about a subject I, I felt I knew as well as anybody. And it, it was really striking to me. And, and it feels very old school. You know, well, it, it, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying I don't have sources. I mean, I do. I have a handful of people in the NFL I can call up. I try not to abuse the privilege, but, you know, a couple of GMs, um, right. you know, who I probably would prefer I didn't name them, a couple of head coaches, uh, current and former, you know, I, I mean, I have some people, but it's a pretty small um, group and, and um, you know, so yeah, I, I, if it feels insider, that's good because it means you thought I was right and you do know I, more I about did. it than anybody. I did um, think you were right. Uh, but, you know, sometimes I'm going on in, on instinct too. Uh, I, it's not always a result of, of, but Tony Kornheiser, another, another great writer who, who taught me a lot that, I worked with for a very long time. Tony told me early on, you're only as smart as the people you talk to. I completely agree with that. I really feel that's true. And and I, I think there's too few journalists today, particularly writing about sports, that that do that wide kind of reporting before forming opinions. And, and you certainly are the leader in the clubhouse on that. You mentioned your dad. Um, how old were you when you first told him you wanted to be a writer? Boy, you know, uh, I was out of co- I was in college. Uh, really? That Yeah, way? yeah. Wow. I was a huge reader. Now, that, you know, I was a huge reader. Uh, and so he suspected that something might come of that. Uh, he was always leaving things on my bedside table. It's a uh, you know, we're all big readers in my family and and um so there was And there what was, what kind of stuff did you leave on the bedside table? Oh, you know, uh, it wasn't just my dad, my mother too. Uh, my mom's a big reader. Um so you know, I it's funny breakdown by gender. My my dad would leave Herman Wook and my mother would leave Lillian Hellman. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but my you know, my father left a lot of Nora Ephron, uh a lot of Esquire, you know, Esquire magazine was the the place to go for really good 
writing. Uh, yes. he, you know, he would leave friends of his. You know, I read Sports Illustrated because he was in there, and I developed my own likes and dislikes for other writers uh, in that magazine as well. So, you know, I certainly read everything in Sports Illustrated. I read everything in Esquire. Uh, I read uh, E. Jean Carroll. I remember my dad uh, loved E. Jean Carroll. Uh, he loved uh, Fran Leibowitz. You know, so you know he would he would leave smart, funny, observant uh, women writers on my bedside table. Okay, so it was in college when you first told him, and what was his reaction? Okay, so so the bedside table thing that was actually all through high school, mm-hmm. um, but then in college it was his idea. You know, I was going off to Stanford across the country, and uh, he said, "Look, you know, you might wander over to the student paper because you know whether you ever decide to do anything." Uh, with your life around writing or journalism, you know, the, the paper is a good place to, to meet people. It would make the campus a little smaller. You'd make some friends probably. And uh, he said, you might you might consider going over there. It's a good way to get your foot in into the door on campus and, and meet people uh, because you'll be so far away from home. You won't really know anybody else out there. And so I took that advice. There were a couple guys at the Stanford Daily who had interned at Sports Illustrated that I had a passing acquaintance with through my dad. Uh, he had given given them a heads up that I was coming out there. And um, so so I did what he advised. I took his advice, and um, it, it, it stuck is all I can tell you, you know. And in college, in college, did you only write about sports, or did you write about other stuff too? I, I did. I wrote about sports. It was natural. It was what I mm-hmm. knew. Uh, it was, it, it just made sense. Um, and uh, you know, I started out, and it was. I tell you what, Stanford was a great place to learn to be a sports writer because my first beat ever was water polo. And so, first of all, I had to I had to learn the game. Number one, right. and number two. Uh, Stanford had a, an Olympic caliber water polo team. There were several Olympians on the team. Uh, there were several Olympic swimmers and divers. I spent a lot of time by the pool uh, covering swimming and diving and water polo, among other things. We had a great golf team. We had a great, obviously, a, a pretty good football team that was uh, coached by Bill Walsh for my first year that I was there. We had a great tennis team that had you know pro tour caliber players. So... It was a really exciting beat. And you covered those sports as beats, not not as an opinionist, right? You weren't writing columns. No, I, I was just daily, a reporter, or, or did you yeah. at some point? I finally did as a senior. The first sports column I ever wrote was a series of columns my senior year in college. But but up until that point, I was purely a reporter. I was learning learning the business and stringing. I did a little stringing for the Associated Press um, and for the local uh, Palo Alto Times. What was your first sports column uh, for the Stanford Daily? Do you remember? <laughs> you know, uh, it. I, 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 I'm hard pressed to remember what the opinion, what the take would have been, uh, but it, it, it might have been around the, the, the Stanford nickname because it was a big controversy the whole time I was in school. Uh, they had done away with the Indians as the mascot. They were one of the first schools to say that's Yeah, I was going to say they were way ahead of their time. They were way ahead of their yeah. time. And, and then there was a long siege-like uh, fight on campus over what our sports teams should be named. And we went through the Griffins, which was uh, completely idiotic, in which the student body <laughs> <laughs> quickly voted down. And, in fact, this is how the Stanford tree came to be. Uh, the students wanted to we, – we quite smart-alecly voted to call ourselves the robber barons since Leland Stanford had been a railroad robber baron. 
Oh, I love that. And the, very cheeky. Yeah, That's very, great. very cheeky. Very, very, very classic Stanford student body, irreverent. But the administration vetoed us, which really made us angry. And so then someone said, well, you know, if you're not going to let us be what we want to be, well, hell, just call us the trees because the Stanford insignia was a eucalyptus tree. And uh, so we voted to just call ourselves the trees. And the Stanford <laughs> band, the next very next game, the Stanford band came out on the field with a dancing tree leading them onto the field. And so that's, The tree uh, mascot, really. The tree, that's, that's where the tree came from. Yeah. Awesome, awesome. So it was, it was great. Those were great years. And when you were at Stanford, did you ever try to imitate your dad's writing style or even before that um he has he has such a as you know as you know as everybody knows who's listening such a distinctive style did you ever try to imitate that i did not and i'll tell you what the smartest i had one great insight of that was my own uh very early on and i realized that if you tried to imitate him you sounded like an idiot (laughs) (laughs) i knew good writing from bad because i was a big reader and and uh and my dad and I would read together quite a lot, actually. Uh, and I, I had the sense to realize that people, you know, there were a lot of younger writers that did try to imitate them, and they really sounded silly in print. Uh, you know, my my dad gave me a pretty good tuning fork. I I really believe that he gave me an ear and uh, an honest ear, for lack of a better word. Um, you know, an ear for the authentic voice. And would would stress to me all the time, find your own voice, find your own voice, you know, interest yourself first, entertain yourself first, because if you don't interest and entertain yourself on the page, you're not going to interest or entertain anybody else either. Yeah, it's that's great advice, Sally. And you have such a distinctive voice. I mean, I love your writing style. It's got this muscular authenticity to it for sure and but when did you find that you really had found your voice as a writer was it while at Stanford or was it after that I would say it was after that I mean I, you know I loved learning I, I I feel like I've spent most of my career as a writer learning to write um, you know you study uh, I tell young writers you know the the, re, the the things you enjoy reading study them for what you think you are enjoy about them, you know Stephen. King, I was a big Stephen King fan, and I, I it struck me one day that Stephen King would be a great sport writer because he understood pace. Yes. He, he he could you know a lot of times, particularly with with television and and then the internet, you you spend a lot of times trying to describe games um, and results where the reader already knows what happened, and your job has become to try to interest them and and make it. Uh, you know, fun to read, even though the outcome's already been decided. Right. So your your focus is obviously on you want in, you're trying to give insight, right, and and in- perspective and context. Yeah. So how do you build a sense of drama in a story when yeah. everyone knows the ending already? And so you know, if you're reading a Stephen King novel, you may not know the specific ending, but you know, you know the good guys from the bad guys, and you know. That you know, the, you know what's going to happen pretty much, but he manages to make it incredibly, uh, you know, suspenseful anyway. And so I would read Stephen King for pace and suspense and try to figure out, well, how can I imitate that in a game story? Um, you know, not not imitating his language so much, but the the literally the length of sentences or uh, the use of ellipsis. You know, I mean, I I loved studying the the. The technical, the, the the technique of writing, I still do. Besides Stephen King, who are some of your other influences in, in the sort of technical side of writing when you were when you were young? Um, so for 
For first person, I would say I, I would say Lillian Hellman was a big influence mm-hmm. uh, because that was the first the the first first person uh, writing that I read. I, I mostly I don't like first person stuff, but hers I did uh, because it it tended to be about more about other people than her. Uh, you know, if you read Lillian Hellman's work, and I know some people dispute the truthfulness of it. Uh, but but the style of it is really fascinating because she manages to write in the first person and yet pretty much everything, it, it, it's always about other people. And what's about her is such a slow reveal. Yes, it's very well put, for sure. Um, your first job out of Stanford was where? Uh, covering high school football in Marin County, California in the rain. <laughs> trying to trying to keep the ink trying to keep the ink from running down the page, so wow. my da- my dad was very clear there weren't going to be any shortcuts thanks to him. It was he he said learn your craft and the best way to learn your craft is to go to work for a newspaper, uh, covering anything they'll let you cover. I was I did some city side reporting for the L.A. I interned at the L.A. Herald Examiner, the old Hearst paper out there, mm-hmm. and covered. Uh, you know, covered a murder and a, a flash fire and chased some ambulances and did some of that and, and then covered high school football, went running back to sports and covered high school football in Marin County when a great running back named Brad Muster was was tearing up the league in uh, in Northern California and, and became a great NFL running back. Um, so I did that for a few years and then graduated to covering some small colleges St. Mary's and Pepperdine and uh, USF, University of San Francisco, um, and then graduated from there to Pac-10 sports and uh, covered a lot of college football and basketball. And when did you start covering pro sports? You know, really uh, not until I got to the Washington Post mm-hmm. in the in the mid to, to late. I, I mostly covered college sports when I got to the Washington Post in, in 1984. Uh, it was probably several years before I covered much NFL or, or much professional sports. I did get to cover, I covered pro tennis and pro golf uh, fairly early on. The best beat in the world at, at the Washington Post was to cover uh, tennis and golf, and you usually got to do them together. Uh, it was one one beat assignment, and it meant that you got to go to the French Open, uh, Wimbledon, and the British Open all on the same trip. Incredible. It was incredible. Yeah, that's great. I mean, yeah. I'd go over. And those to, are in I'd, the days of the. Those are in the days of the fat expense account too. Exactly. Well, uh, not for us, but uh, you know, I mean, I'd stay in little t- tiny hotel rooms, but really, but you know, yeah, but I'd stay over there for. I'd pay my own way in between the events and stay over there for you know over a month, and and, you know, you had to write every day. You, you certainly had to file enough copy to make the expense worth it. I mean, I remember I would I would cover Wimbledon and I would write. A, uh, a main story, a sidebar, and notes. I'd write three stories in one day. Wow! To justify to justify the expense of being there, and I, I did it on the French Open and Wimbledon, and then I would end up in Scotland at the British Open before I came home. Uh, but those were great years. I was in my twenties. I, I, you know, I'd go all over Europe. It was, it was those were fabulous, fabulous ways to learn. One of the things I was struck by, I did a piece about the battle of the sexes a few years ago and went to Wimbledon and hadn't covered tennis at all. But tennis is so wide open. It's 
the access is so easy. Everybody and anybody that I asked to speak with was available. It's beautiful, isn't it? It, it is. It's like the, it, mm-hmm. everybody's sort of um, just willing to sit down with you. They have nothing but time, it, it seemed like. It's the total opposite of the National Football League. Yeah, there's a beautiful proximity between the fan and the athlete in tennis. I mean, it's uh, almost tactile. You know, you you uh, you can almost feel the fabric of their shirts, you know, yeah. and, and that's a beautiful thing about that sport. Uh, you know, the, it really, when Roger Federer hits a forehand, you can almost feel it in your own palm. You know, there's no bad seats in tennis. That's a, that's a, you know, one of the one of the great great privileges any sports fan uh, can have is to just to go to the U.S. Open or Wimbledon or the French uh, in the first week or the Australian if you can get yourself there and just wander the outer courts on the first or second day of the tournament. Yes. And there's just there's just great tennis all over the place, 360 degrees. Uh, there's a good match on every court and. And it's it's for all for the price of one ticket. And and some of them, you know, you'll find only a handful of people watching, right? Just a mm-hmm. few dozen sure. people will be on, you know, the outskirts of, of Wimbledon. I, I was really struck by that, it, yeah. as you say, the accessibility and you feel it. It's it's just it's fantastic. And, you know, you can go the, the day before the tournament starts. You wander out there. I and mean, I'll never forget uh, wandering the outer courts at Wimbledon. And I, I came around a, a hedge. And there was uh, Pete Sampras hitting with Rod Laver. Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, amazing. I, I I took a seat for that. Yeah, for sure. I I sat on a bench and watched that for for more than a couple of minutes. Oh, that's so cool. And I'll never forget Sampras hit this you know beautiful running, you know frying pan forehand shot that just just rocketed across the court, and Laver just quietly said, "That'll do." <laughs> <laughs> Who's your favorite tennis player to, to cover? Who is who was your favorite, or maybe who is? Oh, I, you know, I got so lucky because I got to cover the the last days of of Everett and Navratilova, hmm. and there there are just there are just not two more interesting, decent, funny uh, champions on the face of the earth. Uh, they were so much fun. They were accessible. They were likable, and they the the the, the sheer beauty of the tennis that they played against each other and other people too uh was so much fun to watch and and that you know that that's not to take away from anybody else that I covered but they were when they hit the ball there was a they were taught uh so beautifully their strokes were so gorgeous to watch and um and then there was that whole psychological thing going on between them and and you know two great champions inhabiting the same era and and yet somehow managing to be friends uh, close friends, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was fast. That was fascinating. I loved covering that. I would have killed to have covered Billie Jean King because she was so tempestuous. She would have been a lot of fun to write about. I regret that I wasn't old enough to to cover her in her heyday. But you know, I got great. I got the great matches between Boris Becker and Stefan Edberg. Those were those oh, were yeah. great matches. And and I and I got the the best of uh, Sampras and Agassi. Nobody was more fun to cover than Andre Agassi. And such a great rivalry between those two. Yeah. 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 Uh, when you had the opportunity to go to Sports Illustrated, um, how did you first react to that? Was that something you were really anxious to do, to go to the magazine of your dad? Or how, how did you feel about that at first? You know, I had a lot of trepidation about going to the magazine where my father had worked for, for 25 years. But I was 
I was desperate to get better. I was desperate to learn to be, my real ambition was to be a magazine writer, to write magazine length. Uh, as, as much as I loved the Washington Post, uh, in those years, and I hated to leave, I cried like a baby to leave the Washington Post, but I really wanted to learn how to write long form, and I just couldn't do it at the Post. It, it was too hard. Uh, uh, the workload was was too much. I mean, I wrote, I remember my last year at the Washington Post when I was in my, my late twenties, I think I wrote 368 stories in a single year oh and it just was too, I, so I, I, I wanted the, some breathing room yeah, that's to a, learn. That, that, that's a kill. You can't keep up that pace. Well, you can't, you can't be a great writer no. at that pace. You can be a, you can be a good writer and right. you can learn an awful lot about, about deadlines and pressure and structure and craft, but, but you, there are certain muscles you simply can't mm-hmm. develop do, doing that. And so i I, I wanted to be a magazine writer and, and took the shot. And I also wanted to make the money, to be frank. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I got a nice raise out of the move. Oh, yeah. It's different money in the magazine world, for sure. I, you know, le- less work for more money was was a real big draw for me. And But mainly, honestly, the, the real uh, the, the real thing that got me there was really I just wanted to learn how to how to write, you know, three to 4,000 words. What was your dad's reaction when he found out you were joining SI? He was opposed. Really? Uh, because he, yes, he was. He did not uh, care for the people in charge of the magazine in that era. Uh, he didn't think they were good to women. He thought it would be a mistake. He thought, and uh, his exact words were, they have nothing to teach you. Wow. Uh, and you and felt, and you obviously felt they did. I felt, I felt the magazine business had something mm-hmm. to teach me. And, um, and to be honest, I think, I think it was good for me. Uh, I think my dad was, was in that instance wrong. I learned a lot while I was there. One of the things I learned uh, how to do was, was deal with, uh, editors and bosses who aren't very good to you. Uh, there was, you know, there was certainly some sexism there. There's no question about it. There's also some wonderful guys who I really, to this day, still have a lot of respect for. But, you know, they would do things like tell women to give their notes to male writers. You know, I mean, that happened more than once. Oh, my gosh. Uh, there, was, there was stuff like that Brutal. that you had to really, you know, choke down and, and um, you know, so. Th- but it was, I can remember Billie Jean King telling me, you need to learn how to deal with this. You know, this is this is real. When did she give you that advice? When you when you were at SI? Yes, mm-hmm. very early on. I I I I felt within the first year that I had made a mistake going there and I can remember walking with her. I I I had written a story about her actually that it was the first time I'd really gotten to know her and uh, we had met for coffee after the story came out and I said, "You know, I I'm not sure I need to stay here. I may have made a mistake." And she said, "No, you need to stay. You need to learn how to do this." You know, wow. you need to learn how to work work in circumstances that aren't ideal and and uh, you know toughen up. And you took that advice. It's great. It was. I did. I stayed for seven years. Learned how to deal with it. I think had a pretty good career there. Uh, learned a lot, really. And and again, there were some terrific editors there as well. It, it was not a a nightmare scenario by any stretch. You know. Did you have any ambitions while you were there, Sally, to be the back page columnist? You know, they asked me to, to, I wrote a couple of things for the back page. They, they never offered it to me full time. Uh, it was, was it a, something you would have wanted a, if they had, if they had done that? 
I, you know, again, you know what's so funny, Don, is I really never wanted to be a columnist. I wanted to be a feature writer and a magazine writer. I thought that was the most glamorous job in the world. And actually, nobody's more surprised than me to to be in the position I'm in now. Um, and I, I actually still love long form and miss it. Uh, I, I still try to do some of it for the Washington Post. Um, I, I end up writing all kinds of weird things for the Washington Post just because I feel like I, I don't want to lose those muscles and I want to keep, you know, working them out. Did you you mentioned the sexism at the magazine? Was there sexism at the Post when, during your first stint there too, or or, or was there never never not no, at all never no wow. no I mean it's I, I've I've been so we talk about this, you know George Solomon who hired me at the Washington Post and was my boss for most of those years. Uh, my first beat was the University of Maryland. Uh, I covered Maryland football, and George said, "You're not going to have a problem out there. I've already I've, I've talked to them about this, and, and if you do have a problem, you need to come right to me." And I went out there the first day, and Bobby Ross said, "Listen, George has has talked to me, and you're not going to have a problem out here. And if you do, you you come right to me." Oh wow, that's amazing. <laughs> and uh, you know, so that's the foot I got off on. Yeah. I mean, jo- George was the first sports editor to, to hire two women. He had Christine Brennan covering the Washington Redskins. And then he hired me to cover college football and college basketball. So, uh, what year was that? That was 1984. Okay. So George, you know, George de- deserves all the credit in the world for that. He was ahead of everybody, not just in hiring women, but hiring women for major beats and hiring more than one woman. You know, a lot of papers had one woman. Uh, the Boston Globe had Leslie Visser. Um, you know, uh, but nobody had two. George was the Washington Post was the first that had two women, and much less two women on two of the biggest beats at, in the section. So it's a total culture shock when you get to SI with the bad treatment of women that was there, the sexism, all of that. Um, you had never had to. You were not exposed to that at the Post because of Solomon. I really wasn't. Yeah. I really wasn't. And I, you know, the other thing I hadn't been exposed to was there was a certain culture back then where you know, the editors didn't really like the writers that much. To be, <laughs> to be frank, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and l- let's face it, you know, they were trapped in this office building in Midtown Manhattan, and we were out going to again the French Open and Wimbledon and and you know Super Bowls and stuff like that. And so there was a certain there was a certain edge, you know, I think that probably had something to do with kind of being being trapped in that office. And, and, and we were out there with the nice expense account having the, the adventures. And uh, so, yeah, you, um, you, you know. You're living the life. I, I felt that at the New York Times. Um, I joined the Times in 95. And I felt that a lot of editors just resented writers. You know, you're living the big adventure, like you said, and they're they're chained to desks. A lot of them work 15 hours a day. They work through weekends, and it, and if you're at a place that's an editor's paper, or and the and SI's an editor's magazine in, in some in some way, it, it actually exacerbates it a little bit. Yeah, and I, you know, there was a certain amount of you know, you'd turn in a story and they'd act like, boy, we saved that one. Yes, yes, that's right. <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> There, there is, um, there yeah, is uh, that, that to, to sort of justify yeah. justify their 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 place at the magazine, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I had I had very similar experiences at the Times when I was there through sixteen years. Um, uh, you did a piece at SI. I want to ask you about Sally. The headline was, and I believe it was a cover piece. Is tennis dying? I think you wrote that in nineteen ninety four. Um, what was the reaction to that piece? Well, you know, the reaction in the tennis world was not great. Yeah. Uh, I think 
you know, I had covered the sport for quite a lot of years, both at the Washington Post and then at uh, Sports Illustrated. And so I think some people inside tennis felt a little uh, betrayed. I, I, I think Brad Gilbert, I can remember, I heard that Brad had said something to the effect of, well, we all know it's true, but, you know, I don't like that it came from a jerk like Sally Jenkins. You know, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you know some people felt like, you know, the, the business of tennis was struggling and that it wasn't great for the sport. But, you know, it wasn't it wasn't my job to promote tennis. It was my job to try to identify um, a, a problem, a creeping, a creeping problem in the sport. And, uh, you know, there were, I think most people felt like it was essentially true. Uh, they knew it was there, but they just didn't like hearing it. And, you know, I can remember, again, sitting on a bench at Wimbledon with Pete Sampras and saying, look, you know, and, and, and explaining, I, I said, look, Pete, I'm really tired of trying to explain to people that, that people like you and Andre are better than you seem. You know, I'm tired of trying to tell the audience uh, that you're more approachable and accessible than you may seem. Um, you know, uh, and I, you know, I think the sport responded. I, I, I feel like a lot of the things that you see today, uh, player interviews on the court, uh, stuff like that, uh, is partly a result of the fact that those problems, you know, were identified. You know, I was just the messenger. Everybody knew there were issues. And they took it. They took some of that criticism to heart and changed some of the culture and, and the way the game, the way the game presented itself. I, and I think that that was probably going to happen anyway. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, I don't, th- I don't think that piece uh, forced the issue. I, j- I just think it, it it subjected some people to. I think it happened more quickly, probably. But I, I, I think there was already quite a lot of talk within tennis. I mean, quite frankly, everyone quoted in the story were tournament uh, organizers and tournament directors and Billie Jean King and Chris Everett. You know, I mean, I, I can remember. Billie Jean saying, "There's a part of me that wants to just knock it all down and start all over again." I think that was a a quote in the story, and I can remember Chris Everett saying, "I'm really kind of disappointed in the younger generation that they are uh, not interacting with the audience as much as they should, that they're not taking the leadership in the players' union that they should." You know, the the voices in the P. It wasn't my voice. I was just the reporter on the story. Mm-hmm. It wasn't an an opinion piece. I gave the microphone in that piece to some of the biggest voices in tennis, and that's what they had to say. And everybody was on the record. Oh, totally, yeah. yeah there, were, there were no blind quotes in that piece. Right. I, I think that was part of what hurt. That was uh, the power of the piece. Yeah, the, the, exactly, that the, the, the voices in the piece were, were the, the eminences that's of right. the sport. Yeah. How important is collegiality uh, among journalists? Oh, it's huge. And, and, you know, it's funny uh, that you bring that up because the Olympics are coming. And I feel like the Washington Post sports section pretty much every year sends one of the smallest staffs to cover the Olympics. We'll probably have, you know, six or eight people. And USA Today will have hundreds. Uh, The New York Times will probably have their usual hundreds. ESPN will have a gigantic operation. And, And I feel like we outperform most of them and it, part of it is because we've got a very tight team and a lot of uh, team chemistry. You know, uh, there's a lot of uh, laughter on our in our group, and there's there's a lot of um, it's it's hard to describe, but you know, 
so if if I'm with Barry's Beluga and Dave Shinen at an Olympics, you know, we're all trying to outright each other um, in a in a really good way. Mm-hmm. Because there's a lot of mutual admiration uh, among us. Uh, you know, I think Adam Kilgore is just maybe the brightest young sports writer in the business. And, uh, you know, when we all go to a big event like that, there's a lot of pushing each other uh, in a very collegial way. Yeah, and that, and that, it, that's a remarkable thing, and it's a rare thing. We, we know, we're, we're very cognizant of the fact that we get along better. Our, our, our group, our crew at the Washington Post, uh, you know, we, we go out to dinner with each other by choice uh, and not obligation. We're, we're very friendly. Uh, we're, clo- we're a very close-knit group. And I think part of it is uh, we, we know how much talent we have in the room and we love it. You know, it's a lot of fun. You know, I tell people, I, I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm playing for the New York Yankees, you know, hanging around those guys. I think that must be what it's like to be a part of a great dynasty, you know, to be at the New England Patriots or the uh, the New York Yankees, you know, to be in a, a locker room like that. I think I have some small sense of it from being able to work with guys like Dave Shine and and, and Chuck Culpepper, yeah, and the- Tom, Bo- you know, Tom Boswell and um, you know Jerry Brewer. I mean, you just we're, we're Sluggers Row. I mean, there's not a weak writer. Liz Clark, Chelsea Janes, you know, it's just everywhere you turn, there's another really great talent. Will Hobson, one of the best investigative reporters uh, in the country. I, I agree. I agree with you. And everybody you mentioned is is fantastic. And the collegiality is so important and rooting for your colleagues is so important. And as I was saying, I think it's rare and remarkable. When you were at SI, my friend Scott Price, who was on the podcast last time, um, mentioned to me, you know, he was hired, I think, in 1994. You had been at the magazine um, for a short time, but he he basically came in to write tennis and college football, which is what you were covering. And mm-hmm. Scott told me that, you know, you could not have been nicer. You basically opened up your Rolodex and your notebook to him and pointed him in the right directions. And that I remember him telling me that then. And it, it's striking because um, it's rare, as I keep saying. I, I think I, we have that at ESPN for sure, but at the, at the times where I was for 16 years, it was it was it was a, a very very rare thing. And and I yeah. think you're right. It really it, the coverage reflects that when you have people who are very talented and who are trying to outright each other, but in a collegial way, but also looking out for each other and helping each other. Well, the phrase that Ben Bradley invented for it was creative tension. Yes. Uh, you know, the, the ability the ability to be challenged without being defensive is real confidence. Or threatened, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and that's the essence. Look, writers are like their fingerprints. I mean, the way I always viewed it is, you know, I love Chuck, Chuck Culpepper, and I am, I am sometimes want to slip my wrist. He wrote something so good that I didn't. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I just read him and I go, oh, God, I wish I had written that or I wish I had thought of that. Um, but but Chuck couldn't write what I write. You know, we're we're all individual voices. And I think the essence of, of being a confident writer is is knowing that, really knowing it, uh, you know, trusting your own senses and your own sensibility uh, to put your hand on the page and it's your fingerprints and no one else's. Yeah, and to and and to own that, and 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 to know it, and to feel confident in that, and comfortable with that, and to make peace with it, because there's a yes. lot of writers, as you know, that, that they don't want to stay in their own lane. They're not satisfied with that necessarily, uh, and it's not always the best move when they get out of their lane. Yeah, the other thing is, you know, you if you get all 
chippy and defensive and uh, about it, um, and you don't put a hand out and really get to know your fellow writers, you stop learning, and and that's a pity. I mean, you know, I, I just. Just talking about Chuck Culpepper, I mean, literally just in the last couple of months, I've watched how he delivers on deadline in the big event. You know, I mean, he covers that national championship football game. And, you know, Alabama comes back and wins that game. And everyone around him is probably dropping like flies. And he manages to write in those situations better than any writer, any sports writer in the country. And he took, he's been asked about it more than once, and I really look at his replies. And he has the ability to stay loose in those situations and to to uh, convince himself to enjoy it instead of panic. Mm-hmm. And I've learned a lot from that in the last couple months. Now I'm 57 years old, and I've been doing this, you know, since I was 20. And and I just learned something from Chuck Culpepper. That's so cool. That I wouldn't. If that I would not learn if I felt a sense of rivalry with him or now I, I, I take it back. I feel a little sense of rivalry with him. But you know what I'm saying? Yes. If, I, if I felt a sense of threat, I'd be way more interested in criticizing him or keeping him at arm's length or, you know, so uh, to, you know, whatever young writers are out there that are going to hear this thing, you know, it is just essential uh, to befriend your fellow writers because they've all got something to teach you that they're, they're better at something than you are. That might be the best advice, really, that you can give young writers is don't look at your uh, your, your colleagues as competitors uh, and, and wall them off. You know, accept them, befriend them, as you said, with open arms. They know stuff. They've got skills that you don't have um, or that you're just developing. And can you can learn from them. And I'm 53, Sally. I keep learning. I'm working with younger writers most of the time. You know, you, you and I, are old, we're older. We're the veterans. I'm always learning from younger people um, still. And, and, and it's, that's essential. Well, and you have to, you have to keep studying your own weaknesses yes. too. And, and those, those weaknesses change, you know, I mean, as you get older, you have a little less energy, uh, you know, and, um, you have to, you know, there's a creeping, uh, indolence. <laughs> <You know>? Yes. <laughs> you have to, you have to really push yourself to, yeah. to, to, you know, make that last phone call or, or, you know, make the extra, you know, walk down a hallway to find one more person to talk to who's going to deliver the anecdote that makes a difference in the story. You know, all that stuff you have to stay pretty cognizant of, I think. Um, and your your own weaknesses as a writer uh, are curable as long as you keep, you know, looking for them and try to um, stay you can't. You just have to really be on guard against mailing it in. Right, and you have to be on guard against plateauing, right? And Pla- yeah, plateauing is the great enemy of, of being a longtime writer. That's exactly right, particularly as a columnist. Uh, For sure. The sense of sameness, you know. God, I've written this column a hundred times. You know, how am I going to do it different this time? Yeah, that's the great enemy, right? It really is. Yeah, yeah. totally. It really is. Um, among newspapers, magazines, and of course, you've done 12 books, but of those three, what's the most gratifying of the three? Working for newspapers, that magazine experience you had at SI, or writing the books? You know, far and away, the most gratifying I've ever done as a writer is work at the Washington Post. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it is the great pride of my life. It's such a great institution. It's full of great people, uh, you know, great journalists, great mentors. Uh, you know, I 
I'll go to my grave uh, grateful about that. I really will. Uh, and it's especially in the the era that we're in, the, you know, the fake news and and the um, the challenges of you know the president's not exactly kind to to journalists. It, it feels especially gratifying right now. Uh, you know, I, I'm always I'll always be proud of myself for pushing myself to write books. Um, I, I I think a great strength I have as a writer is I like to scare myself. And so I'm proud of that stuff. Um, proud of the books. I'm proud of the, I've learned to write history. Um, the real all Americans I'm very, very proud of because I really didn't know how to research. Um, great, uh, great uh, book and, gr- and great subject. T- t- tell our well, listeners a little you. bit about, I, about that book. So the real all Americans is the true story of the Carlisle Indian school, uh, which in the Victorian era, uh, took on the Ivy Leagues and also uh, Army and and won on the football field. It's it's a great true story that had been kind of buried uh, historically. And so I went back and um, did a lot of primary source uh, research and, and kind of unearthed what to me was a beautiful sports mural. Uh, you know, the, the Carlisle Indians really pioneered the forward pass, only no one ever gave them proper credit for it. They, they gave improperly gave the credit for that to Notre Dame. And so I felt like I was able to tell a good story of, that's perfectly true about Jim Thorpe and the Carlisle Indian School and and also do a good piece of American history. Yeah, you set and, the record you set the record straight and and in a great story that's very cinematic too. Well, I hope so cuz a couple of people have suggested trying to turn it into a movie, but that would be hitting the lottery if that happened. But so I'm very proud of that book. It was it was my idea. It was very self-started and self-motivated, so I'm I'm proud of that book. But but nothing touches uh, putting the Washington Post after my name. Nothing. I want to ask you about it's not about the bike and and Lance Armstrong. Um, was that the book that of yours that's most successful? Uh, probably. You know, it was someone else's success. I think everybody, you know, thinks you get rich on those books and you don't. You're you're just the carpenter. Uh, Lance made a lot of money out of that book. Uh, but and I'm proud of that book, by the way. I love that book, and I love him. Uh, I'm not. I'm not disappointed in in that book, or frankly, in him. Uh, now, now, Lance apologized to you um, after it came out about his his drug use, um, not just for misleading you, but also for harming your reputation. So, I wanted to ask you, Sally, do you think he hurt your reputation? You know, I, I'm not the best judge of that. You know, I think other people have to judge that. Mm-hmm. I I always said at the time. When I was first, when he first confessed and all of that, I think maybe it was, I don't know, someone, a blogger, media blogger or somebody, I think asked me about that. And, and I said, you know, I'm, I'm interested in, in being a, 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 a good friend to him because we are friends and I'm interested in being a good journalist and everyone else is going to have to um, draw their judgments about me based on that stuff. I, 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 just don't believe in kind of caring that much about that. I, I care about uh, my own self-judgment on that stuff. Um, so I, I just have to go with that. You know, I will say this. There were two apologies from Lance, and the first one was very awkward um, and, you know, not all that gratifying for either one of us. <laughs> He, he, he called up and he was kind of stammering around, you know, and I said, Lance, are you trying to apologize? And he said, I am, you know, yeah, I am. 
in this gruff way. Uh, he has this very gruff demeanor when he's cornered, you know. And uh, and I said, well, you don't have to. You don't owe me an apology. I'm a grown up. I always knew there was a chance of this. And you know, I I I just don't. I don't particularly judge it, which I don't. I think athletes, particularly guys like him, who you know, his career alternative was joining the army. Uh, you know, his mom started as a supermarket checkout girl. I, you know, I don't have the heart to, I've, I've always said, I, you know, I must be, you know, my take on the doping stuff, and it really predated Lance by a lot. Uh, I have grave reservations about the judgments we hurl at people over it. I, you know, I, I must be a libertarian on that subject. But I think we overcriminalize it. I think we don't know what these substances really do so much of the time. There's a lot of uh, study to suggest that they don't provide the benefits that we think they do, and they can also be counterproductive in some ways. I think we need a lot more study uh, and thought about our philosophy behind the anti-doping movement. Uh, now, personally with Lance, you know, I felt he was incredibly uh, stupid for not coming to me sooner. I mean, I would try to ask him. I'd say, you know, is there something you need to tell me? Is there something we need to talk about? Do you need to tell the world something because if you do I'll help you you know and he didn't do it he said no did you have suspi- you know, we- did you have suspicions that he was doping while you were writing that book no none I did not mm-hmm. no no we wrote that book it was literally he had just won his first tour de france and he still didn't know if he was clear of cancer i mean he was still having 6 month checkups right. i mean yeah. um and i just my impression was there was no way in the world he would have jeopardized his health. I just, he, you know, he would say things to me that were incredibly sort of persuasive. Like, you know, he would say things like, I feel like I'm still getting the chemo out of my body. I feel like I'm still, I feel like I'm not even fully healthy yet from the cancer and the chemo. He, he would say, I feel like I'm still getting that crap out. And it was inconceivable to me that he would put crap in that he thought might jeopardize his health. Um, so no, I really didn't believe he was, uh, doping. I I bought it hook, line and sinker. And, uh, I still believe to this day that he's genuinely the best cyclist in the world. And I think all of his colleagues believe that, uh, I don't think anyone would dispute that he was better than anybody he was riding against. Um, you know, um, now, you know, the, the, I think there's no question that the success went to his head, mm-hmm. uh, that it changed that it changed him, uh, made him arrogant, uh, in some cases mean. You know, his 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 wife Kristen told me something very early on that was I to me the best observation I've ever heard about Lance. And she, she said she said, I'll give you one piece of advice. Don't corner him because if you corner him, he's gonna try to fight his way out of it every time. Um and I think that's very true. Yeah. Uh, I think I think that part of it was when he was under threat, he would he would just and he knows this about himself now. Uh, it, it triggered really really bad responses in him. And you know I was very lucky. I, I've always told people I got the very best of Lance. I've gotten his nicest, funniest, uh, most easygoing side. I would not want to compete against him. Uh, I would not want to be his enemy. Uh, I was lucky. I, I you know I was his friend and his colleague on the book and uh he was very sweet to me he's always been very dear to me and so you mentioned the first apology was awkward and you had to ask him 
whether yeah. uh, he was apologizing. What was the second apology like? I'm assuming it went better. Yeah. So the end of that that first conversation was, I, I you know, I just basically said, look, you know, I, I, good luck rolling this back now. You know, I, I said, uh, my problem with you is is not so much that I judge the doping. My problem is that. Uh, people really needed to hear this from you first. You know, I needed to hear it from you first, not from USADA. And I think everyone else is going to feel the same way that they needed to hear this from you first. And the fact that they didn't hear it from you first, I'm not sure you're ever going to be able to uh, roll that back and recover from that. Um, so that was the first conversation. The second conversation uh, took place after the Oprah interview. and um, Which, which you know, was obviously- f- five years ago this week, by the way. Oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah I didn't even know that. Yeah. Um, I didn't even realize that. Um, so, so the Oprah interview, which I didn't actually see, I was driving at the time. I was driving long distance to Knoxville, Tennessee, because Pat Summit had Alzheimer's, and uh, I was driving down there to try to help her work on a book and also deal with the sort of devastation of that disease. And so, you know, my my honestly, that the other thing about that whole time was that my head was more into that than it was into Lance's problems. You know, I, my feeling was he's healthy. He's got a great family. His kids are healthy. He's, you know, he's made a lot of money and uh, it's not cancer and he's going to be fine. You know, Pat wasn't going to be fine. You know, so I was really kind of more, people would say, are you, how are you feeling about Lance and everything? And I I just felt like, you know, it's more about how I'm feeling about Pat right now. I think people expected me to have some more dramatic reaction to Lance than I did. And I, I think I would have if, if I hadn't been so concerned for Pat and so kind of caught up in what she was going through. And I just felt like, you know what, this is a problem. What Lance is going through is unpleasant, but it's survivable. Yeah, you, know? you make a great point. So, so much is context, right? I mean, you were comparing. Yeah, yeah you were comparing yeah. the two, and, and you know, Pat, of course, yeah. was, was not was not going to conquer that. No. So, no. so this. So I'm driving to Knoxville, and my and I, and I knew that the Oprah interview had not gone well because I friends had called and said, "Oh God, it was a disaster," and and all of that. I knew he he'd had. A bad experience with it, and I just, I've, I've you know, I've, I've felt for him, and I, so I just called and left a message, and I said, look, I, you know, I just wanted to see how you're doing. I, I understand that you probably didn't get what you wanted out of that interview, and that it didn't go the way you wanted, and I just wanted you to know that uh, I'm thinking about you. And the phone rang very quickly uh, afterwards, and he apologized again, and this time it was in a, a really meaningful, sincere way, and. Uh, I mean, you know, basically what he said was, look, you know, um, there are all these people who say they're my victims. And he said, and a lot of them aren't really victims, you know, uh, and some of them are, um, some of them aren't. And he said, and then there are people who are really truly are um, my victims. And he said, and I think those people probably are the people who truly believed in me and um, who stood by me and believed in me. And he said, and you're one of those. Wow. And he said, so I'm just really, really sorry. And I, you know, I just said, Lance, I'm not your victim. I'm, I'm nobody's victim. But, you know, it meant a lot that he said that, actually, because, it, it, you know, he understood. And, and what do you think changed from the first apology to the second? 
You know, I, I mean, I think he always felt that way, but, you know, Lance isn't the easiest talker in the world. I, mm-hmm. One of the things I like best about him now is that, you know, he's become much more fluent and much more um, expressive and easier in his own skin. I mean, I think I think this, this is sort of... Look, the, the ego of a champion, um, you know, you, you don't... You don't race bikes like that. You don't ride a bike, the uh, piece of aluminum down a mountainside at, at 70 miles an hour uh, because you're, you know, a, a, a wholly healthy person, <laughs> for lack of a better right. yep. word. You know, I mean, all great, all great champions, they come from a place that can be very dark, you know, and, and Lance had some real demons. And, I, you know, I think if nothing else, some of this is maybe – expelled some of those demons or, or allowed him to address them, take a, a, a closer look at himself and why he behaves so combatively in some situations. You know, I, some of that's healthy. You know, I, I think he may pay too high a price for it. I, I really, you know, look, a hun- you know, going after the man for $100 million, uh, it doesn't make any sense to me. I, you know, mm-hmm. I, I just don't think it was the crime of the century. I really don't. I want to I want to switch gears here and go to Joe Paterno. You did the final interview of Joe Paterno's life. He was on his deathbed um, in State College. Um, describe that experience to me. How did that happen, and what were your impressions? Uh, you know, it was a very strange experience. I mean, this, that whole story is just so tough and so uh, so difficult. And you know, it's funny because I think. Um, about 50% of people think I was too hard on him and, and certainly his family thinks that. And then 50% think I was too easy on him. Yep. So, so maybe I'm, <laughs> I don't know. No. And and that, and uh, you know, having covered Penn state for about 18 months myself, Sally, that's kind of what the average is, you know, it's yeah. 50% think you're too hard and 50% think you're too soft. I mean, it's split. Yeah. It was, it was very difficult because the way it happened was, you know, I got approached, I had written a column that basically said, you know, um, child molesters people like jerry sandusky are very expert in getting the adults to trust them as well as the children and um that had come from an fbi expert um a criminologist who was pretty uh, pretty much the national expert in this and i'd managed to get the guy on the phone and written a column about uh as as much as the urge is to just hurl blame at people there's also another side to this deal which is you know, we've got to try to understand just how these people can hide in plain sight. Uh, and so I think the Paterno's lawyers thought that was a useful point of view for their purposes. Right. And they were looking they were looking for someone in the national media um, for Paterno to talk to. And uh, and so they, they drew my name out of the hat, I think, probably because of that column, because they thought, well, at least she's, you know, talked to this FBI guy and—, and has a point of view on this that's that's you know useful um and um so you know i got the interview uh it was very difficult because there was the room was packed with people i mean there was a couple of lawyers there was a pr expert there were um uh two of his kids uh two of his sons um and his wife sue i mean it was not a and, and the lawyers would sort of jump in and interrupt and, you know, it was, it was difficult to get any momentum going in the conversation. And, and, and then of course, the most difficult thing of all was that he was quite clearly uh, dying of cancer and didn't have very 
very long to live. I, I mean, that he, was I very. I think you interviewed clear. him nine days before he died, right? Something yeah, like that? yeah, yeah. So he he wasn't he wasn't in great health. It was a it was a struggle to make sure he understood the question. It was a struggle to make sure that lawyers weren't putting words in his mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just tricky, you know. Um, it was a you, you those kind. It, it was the most difficult situation because um, you're trying to ask frank questions, and yet you don't want the lawyer to cut the interview off either. Um, you know, so it was just a real tightrope, real tightrope. Uh, you know, it was just very. Very tricky and difficult for all kinds of reasons, and 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 of course, you know, um, he he, you know, he was coherent and cogent, uh, mostly. But it was also clear that the chemo had done a real number on him; that he was very sick. Um, you know, clarity. I you know, I remember being concerned about clarity. You know, make sure you're clear on what he's saying and that he's understood the questions. And the interview. Uh the family was not pleased with the interview, I believe. Is that right? I think the family was initially pleased with the um, the feature story that I did. Yes. Um, they were, I think, not, I don't think they were pleased or displeased with the feature story, but uh, the feature story was, you know, it was, it was a big picture, you know, portrait of, of Paterno um, at home, surrounded by his family, uh, understanding that, you know, he was dying and fighting for his reputation and his his legacy, and it was basically his, you know, his explanation of himself. Um, what they didn't like was the column that I wrote after the free report, which uh, contained the emails that I th- found then and continue to find very damning, and which directly contradicted what he had told me in the interview. Right. And in the lead of that story, I have it here. And I want to read it to our listeners. Um, this is on July 12th, 2012. So it's the, the day after the free report was released. Sally writes, Joe Paterno was a liar. There's no doubt about that now. He was also a cover-up artist. If the free report is correct in its summary of the Penn State child molestation scandal, the public Paterno of the last few years was a work of fiction. In his place is a hubristic indictable hypocrite. I mean, very, very tough words um, written um, just six months or seven months before you were, you know, there in State College uh, next to him on his deathbed, you know, portraying him in a, in a very different light. But you came to that, that conclusion, Sally, as you said, based on the free reports conclusions, but also on these emails that you had, that you used, I think, as a basis for that lead. Well, you know, here was the problem. I had asked him point blank, and it was very clear that he understood the question and he understood the answer because I asked him repeatedly. Uh, you know, when you looked at the timeline of the, the first complaints, you know, he swore that when Mike McQuarrie came to him uh, saying that he had seen something sexual between Jerry Sandusky and a small boy in that locker room, uh, he was he was adamant that uh, he had no... Uh, prior knowledge that there had been no uh, indication to him. I said, you never had an inkling prior to that. He said, I never had a clue or something to that effect. You know, I never heard a thing, I think were his words. That's right. And yep. those, and those, I never heard a thing. And I mean, I, I, I pressed the point because it was, it was a crucial point because if, if you had had a report prior to Mike McQuarrie coming to you, uh, if he had had knowledge of previous 
<clears throat> the previous investigation uh, into Sandusky's behavior with a child, uh, then it's a whole different experience when Mike McQuarrie comes to you, you know? And that was the whole It's a critical point. Deal. Yep. Yep. It's a it's a it's a critical point, and it was yeah, and you the simply linchpin, linchpin of the free report. As it, well. it was, yeah. and and you you really and it and you know look you can quarrel with the free <clears throat> the, with the free report. You can say there are things in there that are not persuasive, if you like. I found it persuasive, but uh, but the emails are very persuasive. Let's move on uh, from Paterno land, um, and I wanted to ask you, one, one of the things that I'm really struck by, Sally, about your career is you've avoided television for the most part, um, the sort of the whole around the horn circuit. Um, why is that? Uh, well, the, the simple short answer is uh, I've never been invited to do that much television, at least not for money. Uh, ESPN, I think, loves to have journalists on um, quite a lot. And, I, you know, I've done some of that and enjoy it when I do. But um, uh, two things. I mean, so the, the first answer is I, I haven't been asked to do very much of it. But the second answer is um, I think it really ruins your uh, ambition as a writer. I've always been a little wary of, of, of TV money. You know, I can remember watching Pete Axtelm, who I thought was probably one of the top two or three sports writers of his era, uh, kind of abandon uh, writing for television when he became, you know, he became a television personality. I've always regretted that Tony Kornheiser, uh, you know, didn't write anymore. Uh, he's one of the greats. So uh, I just I just felt like um, I think you have to be a little careful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd love to make the money. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Um, but I also feel like you have to be very uh, careful that you – writing's hard and uh, nothing makes it easier. And when uh, something comes along that is a lot easier, you can very – I think maybe slide into this, you know, I don't need to work that hard anymore mindset and uh, I think that's death to a sports writer yeah and the appeal is irresistible for some because writing is so hard I, mean, I know a number of writers I'm not going to mention their names here but writing because writing is so hard and because you know sitting in a studio and pontificating is a lot easier and as you say the money is great um, they make no bones about it behind a closed door they say that's why they're doing it it's, just, it's easier Look, it's no disgrace. R no. Writing is writing is breaking rocks with a shovel. Right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Mental. I mean, mentally, yeah. it is. You know, it's it. You have to sit in a chair for at least four to five hours to do anything good. Uh, you know, you're very lucky if you write anything decent on deadline in in a couple of hours. Yep. Uh, it's just it's just it's a, it's marathoning. You know, mentally. And I I think you have to. Work at it. You have to work on your endurance. You have to preserve your fitness for that sort of thing. Yeah, it's it, it, it's that's a great metaphor for it is fitness. It's because they're muscles, right? They're muscles that you have to keep flexing. No question. And when you stop or you slow down, even they atrophy. Yeah, it's very hard to go back. And and you literally, I mean, I honestly doing as much newspaper column writing as I am. I've I've lived in fear of atrophy again with the longer pieces. Yeah, it, 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 I, I agree with you. It's, it, it's very different. Um, you know, I, I now am rarely on deadline. Um, 
And so I live in fear of it a little bit. You know, I mean, I used to be on deadline all the time. Uh, I mean, when my first job at the Miami Herald, I was writing three stories a day. So, you know, yeah. that was a long time ago. And you got in a rhythm, right? I mean, yeah. you could, you know, you knew, you knew your, your, uh, your brain was going to fire just right. Yep. And you, you, uh, uh, you know, the, the machine was going to work. And uh, yeah, now when I get you several weeks to write 6,000 words. It's different. Yeah. It's just a different yeah. mindset, um, a different rhythm, all of that. Um, what do you think generally about the hot take culture? Do you think it's gone too far and there's just too much of it? And, and obviously, this a big part of it is a byproduct of the lack of access, right? There's less access than there was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, certainly 30 years ago. And so sports writers lean on the crutch of the hot take. You know, I'm not so concerned about the hot, the hot take. I, I think there's always been, as long as there's been a penny press, there's been the hot yeah, take. Yeah, that's true. Uh, you know, I've... That doesn't bother me. What I do believe is I believe Twitter and Facebook, I think the click culture is changing our brain chemistry a little bit. I think it's it's altering our attention span and our ability to concentrate a little bit. You know, I've and I just speak from personal experience. I, you know, I feel like if I spend too much time on Twitter, I literally find it harder to concentrate. Uh, I'd like to see some good clinical study about what the click culture is doing to our abilities to think and to focus and concentrate. And um, You know what I would love to see, Sally? You you raise a great point about Twitter and what it's done to our attention span. I'd love to see a study of how long people were spending reading long-form stories or, you know, lengthier magazine and newspaper stories 10 years ago you know, before the popularity of Twitter versus today. Because, you know, you look behind those click numbers and, you know, some of those average times that people spend with long stories, 17 seconds, you know, 28 seconds. I mean, people are clicking them, looking at the headline, maybe looking at the first sentence, and they're going away because there's something better, they assume, on their Twitter feed. Well, right. And But also, the encouraging thing is, Book sales are still strong. Yes. So yes. obviously people are uh, – and, and independent bookstores are making a comeback, you hear. And, and you know, so I, I do think people are reading more than they ever have before. And you don't want to sound like one of those people who uh, – one of those sort of purists who says, well, the Bible should still be in Latin. You know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, yes. I mean, you have, to, you have to appreciate, you know, how, how many people get to live through – this sort of industrial revolution, you have to marvel at it and appreciate it. And you can't, you you know, you can't watch supersonic jets go overhead and wish there were still paddle boats in the Mississippi. Right. You know, of course. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I love uh, the blogging culture. I, I love some blogs. I think some of the best young sports writers have come out of Deadspin. Uh, you know, I love those guys. I, I don't always love you know, all of what they write, but I, I just think they're very honest writers and thinkers. Uh, I love their frankness. And, um, you know, so, so I'm, you know, I'm not one who sits around and criticizes what in, the internet or the digital age has done to, to writing or to sports writing. Um, I'm, I'm just more concerned about the attention span. That's it. Yeah. And, and my, I start with my own attention span. Yeah. Yeah. I find, I find the same thing, um, for sure. How do you deal with uh, the Twitter trolls? I find I block I block them. Yeah, I I see that, and I but I, you have a tendency to mix it up with them. I've noticed uh, on Twitter, and and will sometimes, 
get in arguments with them or push back on them. And then, you know, you look at who you're pushing back on and it's an, you know, egg avatar with eight followers. I mean, <laughs> I know. you know, it, it depends on the question entirely. You know, if I think, look, it, it doesn't matter if it's a troll, if, if they raise a question uh, or a criticism that I feel is deserving of a response, mm-hmm. uh, I'll reply to it. Even if it's a troll, you know, maybe sometimes I want to clarify something, um, sometimes I, I do it for sport. Yeah, <laughs> I've noticed honest. that. Yes, yeah, just 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 to slam somebody, just to crush somebody. I have noticed not, not, that you're very good at that, by the way, Sally. Very good. Not so much. I mean, not to cr- not to crush somebody, but to you know to get off a funny line or something that I think is funny. It's not always funny to other people, but uh, yeah. no. I mean, you know, I do like uh, responding to readers that I feel are real readers. Um, yeah, who've, who've or, actually or read who, the piece as opposed to just reacting to what they think the piece says, which happens often on Twitter, of course. Correct. Yeah. You know, what's difficult to to figure out sometimes is, uh, you know, are they bought and paid for trolls? And if so, who's bought and paid for them? Yeah. And if I and if I think that's going on, I, I block them. You know, I, I'm not a muter. I'm a blocker. And if they're impolite, you know, if they're aggressive or attacking um, or vile, um you know, I'll, I'll, I'll hit block. I got no problem hitting block. I've, I don't understand this whole idea. Oh, you don't block on Twitter. You know, what is what is that? Why shouldn't you block people if they're misbehaving or? You yeah, yeah. Your your Twitter genuine? your Twitter stream belongs to you. You're you're, yeah. you're able to curate it any way you feel. You know, works for you. What's the anti-blocking ethic? I don't understand. The, is the argument that it's supposed to be free and open discussion and blocking is sort of anti? Twitter democratic democratic or something is you know I don't I think that's the argument but I I agree with you um, I just can't mix it up with trolls even people that will sometimes make a legitimate point first of all it's time consuming the time I feel I don't have I'm already wasting enough time on there um, but I just have a temper and and I'm I'm curious do you have a temper sometimes you find your temper sometimes runs away with you when you get into some of these discussions with people that are just you know lung, no, you know lung no, headed. Be- no, because I, I don't get into, you know, like if the, to me, it's critical to, you know, you're always a representative of the Washington Post right. and you don't, you don't uh, put any, I don't put anything on Twitter and we're asked not to put anything on Twitter or Facebook that we wouldn't be comfortable publishing under our own names in the newspaper. Right. Um, you know, I'm pretty renowned for being a smart aleck in print in the Washington Post. And so I feel comfortable sometimes being a smart aleck on Twitter. But also you want to listen to readers and um, you want to try to do so dispassionately. And again, um, maybe you got it wrong or maybe something landed harder on the page um, or softer on the page than you intended. And uh, so the reader feedback is pretty critical for that sort of thing. Now, if, if someone comes at me under under a handle that's, you know, Tyler Durden, you know, you're blocked. Yep. You know, if it's a fake name, if it's a false personality, if if I start to suspect that someone bought and paid for your tweet, you're 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 blocked. Yeah. No, that's a good. That's certainly a good uh, credo to have. Um, I want to ask you a couple of very quick questions, and we're going to wrap it up here. Um, the person in sports right now who you're despising the most, who's that? <laughs> despising the most. Who are you despising well, most of all right now, Sally? Dr. Larry Nasser. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Most punchable man in America. Absolutely. Despicable. I mean, that's that's easy. Yep. Despicable. I don't despise. Look, I revere athletes. Actually, I don't despise um, or coaches. I, I. It's very. There's a very very small handful of p- 
people um, that I would have ever even disliked. How do you feel about uh, Roger? I, I, How do you feel about Roger Goodell right now? You know, I feel like Roger Goodell abuses his power. I don't dislike him. I've only met him once face to face, and um, and you know, had a perfectly nice conversation with him. My, when I get after him in print, it's because I think he abuses the position of commissioner and has eroded the integrity of the, his office. It's it's not a dislike thing. How it's how a, is he abused his position as commissioner? Well, I think Deflategate. You know, they didn't have it. Okay, mm-hmm. you may think that Tom Brady, you may think that Tom Brady, um, you know, asked a trainer to do something a little dicey, but you didn't have it. You didn't have the proof, and it was just clear to everybody. And um, you know, you have to have it. You have to have the evidence. Uh, there, all these makeup calls. You know, it, the 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 politicizing of the disciplinary process is not fun to watch or to write about. It's very aggravating. And um, you know, as someone who grew up loving the NFL and and um, whose dad uh, was was friends with Pete Rozelle. And, um, you know, I, I just, I have a kind of a, uh, I hate to see the NFL commissioner's authority and integrity um, under such question. You know, it's not necessary. The thing that's frustrating to me, just as an observer and a writer, you know, look, I, I'd, I'd love to write uh, more fun things about Roger Goodell. You know, I, I, when he goes to the draft every year, that's when you like him the best. You know, when he gets to announce those draft picks and hug those those kids who've, who've just hit the NFL lottery, that's a beautiful moment, you know, and, and you'd like to see that commissioner more and, uh, and less of this patriarchal guy who comes on like, you know, he's administering boarding school whippings. Yeah, and uh, uh, yeah, you're right. Uh, of course, at the draft, he, that's where he hears the loudest boos of the year, as well. Um, you know, when he first steps on that stage at the NFL he, draft. But you know, he didn't used to. He didn't used to hear that. He's 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 brought that on himself. It's self inflicted. Yeah, uh, yeah. He he just he. I think he fell in love with the headlines of being the tough sheriff when he first became commissioner. Uh, he was the anti-Tagliabue. It's how he sold himself to the owners, and uh, that's carried on. Um, he still wants to feel, I think, that hit that he had in that first year because he was getting glowing reviews, Sally. You remember the first year. Um, well, listen, I, I wrote one of them. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, for sure. Look, I, I thought it was commendable to try to get a, a, a grip on uh, something, uh, you know, the, the uh, DUIs, you know, drinking yes. and driving. Yes. You know, there's, these guys are all wealthy enough to call a cab. <laughs> you know, uh, for sure. Yeah, I thought he was right to yeah. to get after some of that stuff. You know, um, but it, it, it's the it's the contradictory, the capriciousness of the discipline that he's meted out, and and the lack of central integrity in some of the investigations that you question. Um, you know, that I question. And does he play favorites among the owners? I think he plays politics among the owners. Mm-hmm. My impression is that he plays them off against each other, that he'll migrate from one to another in terms of his, his you know, who he needs. Um, I think that, uh, I think he plays them off. He, he understands the rivalries among the owners. You know, they don't all get along. They have buried resentments and he knows what all of those are. And I think that he uses it to shield himself. You know, he makes one owner unhappy with something and, and, uh, uses another owner's power to kind of shield himself on certain issues. I think he I think he he plays them off, you know. I agree with you. 
uh, based on my reporting. Um, I think you're spot on with that. And and you said the magic word earlier, makeup call. Uh, you know, a piece I did with Seth Wickersham in 2015 about Deflategate is it was a makeup call for Spygate because that slap on the wrist of the Patriots by Roger Goodell um, did not sit well with many of the most powerful owners. And when those deflated balls were found, it was okay. You know, this is not going to be another Spygate. Well, I, I think that you have gotten to the heart of that better than any reporter in the country in a granular uh, way with specific anecdotes that I think are probably have illustrated all of that better than, than anyone. Well, that's nice to say. I appreciate that. You wrote on Facebook earlier this week, Sally, I, I want to read it to our listeners. Um, I think it was just the other day. Journalism is not just my life. It's the life of my father and all our friends. And when you or the president denigrate it, you denigrate me, my blood, my people, my constitution, and my civil religion. Very powerful. Uh, I want to ask you about the civil religion part. What did you mean by that? Well, I, you know, you could call the national anthem a, a, a kind of a civil religion. Yep. That's how we how we treat it. That's right. You know, when I when I say civil religion, I mean the things that are enshrined in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Things that are uh, they are not religious, but they have a, a, almost a sacred meaning uh, to us as Americans. You know, I, I just believe, uh, without getting too pretentious or over-serious about this, uh, you know, journalists are patriots. You know, we are engaged in, uh, now sports writers are a pretty, you know, minimal <laughs> peripheral factor to this, but nevertheless, uh, you know, we're defenders of, of a constitutional value. And, and it's not, look, and partly what I mean too is journalism is not a job. It is a life and a lifestyle. You have to live it every day. You work weekends, you work holidays, you don't have Christmas dinners with your families. You know, it, it's not like the, the biggest sacrifices in the world because so much of it is so much fun. But at the same time, it really is a, it's a, it's a, it's not a living, it's a life. You have to, to, to do it pretty much 24-7. You, you work very late, you get up very early and to do it. And you don't do that unless you just really, really, really believe in it. I completely agree. And it's it's really not a profession, it's a practice as well. It's what I often like to say. It's, you know, it, you, we're, we're all practicing at it. We're all still learning it. Well, it's the practice of truthfulness, hopefully. Yes. And, and so... You don't take kindly when someone questions your central commitment to that. You know, uh, journalists don't get it right. Mainstream journalists don't get it right. A lot of times we get it very, very wrong, but we try to admit it when we get it wrong. And uh, that's that's the essence of the job is is try to do it right. Try to tell the truth. If you don't, if you make a mistake, you put something in the paper that's not true, fix it immediately and understand that that's the real courage. Uh, you know, that, that it's a form of cowardice not to admit it. It's true. And, and, and the credibility of, of our work, of our colleagues, uh, our reputations uh, in pursuing the truth is, is all we have. And, and we got to fight for it. You know, it's funny. I'll, I'll tell you a story. I love this story about Pat Summit. Uh, we were talking about, uh, I can't even remember what we were talking about. She, she was talking about um, uh, 
the truth, I guess. And uh, she said uh, she had a glass of water and and she she said, you know, this glass of water, it's pretty clear, isn't it? You know, and you go, yeah. And uh, and then she she would uh, she did this with recruits. <laughs> uh, she'd drop an Alka-Seltzer tab in it and it start bubbling and fizzing and everything. And she'd go, it's not real clear anymore, is it? You know, once people start talking, she said, that's what happens. She said, but it's still a glass of water, you know, and you have to remember what it looked like when it was clear. And, you know, I think that's that's just all we're trying to do. You know, a, a, a newspaper hopefully is, is trying to to be a clear glass of water. I love that. Well, on that note, we're going to wrap it up, Sally. You've been fantastic. Um, thank you so much for making 90 Minutes available to our listeners. I've really enjoyed getting to know you and I enjoyed out. it, too. It was great. Yeah. yeah I really, uh, it's, it's mutual admiration, Don. Your work is superb. Thank you, Sally. I really, really appreciate your time. My guest today was Sally Jenkins, sports columnist for The Washington Post, author of 12 books, uh, and... Uh, just a, a fantastic journalist uh, and one I've admired for a very, very long time. My name is Don Van Natta. This is the Sunday Long Read Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We'll do it again soon. Mm-hmm.